we have not uh, often in the course, I don't think ever, in the course of uh, the seven years that Wayne has been our worship uh, pastor, mentioned that many of these songs he wrote. And this is an example of one of the songs that he wrote and uh, Dave uh, arranged for the choir as well. So um, a powerful testimony uh, and, and theologically rich look ahead to our falling upon the grace of God, rising up to meet him and then falling on our face. Powerful words. Well, there are uh, many movies that you can walk in late on. Ten minutes, thirty minutes, an hour and a half. You can come in late and pretty quickly figure out what is going on. If the Bible was turned into a film and you missed the first 30 seconds, it would be impossible for you to ever fully understand and appreciate exactly what is going on. Over the course of the last uh, half dozen times we've been together, we have been focused on uh, the first 30 seconds of the film. Genesis 1 through 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, we were reminded that an all-powerful, holy, righteous, just, uh, a, a glorious creator created heaven and earth. Everything, everywhere, he spoke into existence the sheer power of his word. And as part of that creative activity, he created a man and a woman in his image who he allowed uh, to live in his presence in paradise as stewards over his domain. But about uh, the 20th second of the film, we have those uh, faithful words that open chapter 3, Now the serpent. And uh, we are informed that evil and darkness enter stage left. And we watched as the uh, deceitful, deceptive, uh, silver-tongued uh, emissary of Satan uh, tricks and, and misleads and, and leads to the fall of humanity. Eve is deceived, Adam knowingly disobeys, and death, that is spiritual death, begins. We have uh, been in Genesis chapter 3. This is now the fifth message. And so in previous weeks, we have covered ground, looking, for instance, at the nature of the lie that Satan told. We have looked at the scope and the, the cascading effects of sin. We have compared uh, Adam and uh, Jesus, the second Adam, as Paul calls him. We've looked at the parallels between their lives and their work. Uh, last week, we focused on God's response to man's disobedience and were reminded that we live under divine judgment, that there is a curse from God. We live in a broken world. We deal with the natural consequences of sin, but beyond that, there is, in fact, a curse that has been placed upon us. Genesis 3 is predominantly bad news. Not entirely, but predominantly. And actually, last week we ended on an up note because last week we, I went through Genesis 3.20. And in Genesis 3.20 we read uh, that Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And this was good news because it showed that Adam had actually got it. Through most of chapter 3, he is a world-class jerk. 
He, he, uh, he fails at his assignment. He throws his wife under the bus. He plays the victim card with God. There's nothing about Adam that we like in the first part of Genesis 3. But here, shortly after God has announced that he is going to die, right? For dust you are and to dust you will return. This is a statement that, that spiritual death is going to lead to physical death. Right after that, Adam turns to his wife, who has not had any children, and he names her Eve, which means the mother of all living, the the life-giving one. And, And so it's clear that Adam has listened carefully to what God has said, because woven into the curse is this promise that through the seed of woman will come the one who will redeem man, who will crush the, the, the head of Satan's descendants, right? So what we get here is Adam demonstrating a little faith. And so there's a little uptick that uh, we got at the very end of last week, and we're actually going to continue with some good news because we're going to see now the, the very first sacrifice, the first act of atonement, and, and we're going to see how that will set in motion a... Uh, a trail of blood, a crimson thread that is going to lead all the way to this table that we are going to celebrate the Lord's death uh, again today. Well, I want to read for you out of uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3. I want to set up uh, the passage that we are looking at. It begins with uh, verse 20, and it is going to go uh, through the end of the chapter. I am reading... Genesis 3, verse 20 through verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to teach to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Our focus in particular this morning is going to be on verse 21. And uh, you might be a little curious right now because I said that we're staying on good news and what I read doesn't sound like a lot of good news. But in fact, verse 21 is uh, particularly uh, helpful and hopeful news. And in order to appreciate just how helpful and hopeful it is, you need to understand four things. The first is uh, that that the first action... Adam and Eve took after the fall was to hide. The first thing that they did was to try and cover themselves. In Genesis 3, uh, starting with verse 6, we read that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The first action of fallen man was to try and hide. The very first thing that they did 
was to realize their shame, to realize that they were naked. This is a term that, that has profound metaphorical meaning, but they realized some of what was going on, uh, that before that they had been, they had been perfect, they had had pristine souls, that they, they, had, they had not really been self-conscious, they had been God-conscious. And now suddenly they are aware that they are naked, they are humiliated because they're broken, because of their sinfulness, and so the very first thing they do is try to hide. And we've talked about this before, and I've said that this is part of the cascading effect of sin. When our relationship with God is severed, then our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with ourself is broken. We can't have open and honest relationships with others any more than we're open and honest with ourselves and who we are. And now we've got secrets and hiding, and, and we've got problems. And so what they did is to try and cover themselves. And I think you could make a very strong argument that this is actually the first religious act on record. What we have in their trying to cover themselves is an effort to, uh, to, to be better with God, to present themselves better to God than they were. It, it's, an, it's an act of self-improvement. Um, it is a religious move on their part which leads to the second point and that is that it failed Uh, religion ultimately does in the matters that matter the most we are unable to improve our situation we are not able to to get right with God on the basis of our own activity and so what we see is that their efforts are going to fall short and, and God is actually going to, to inter, interject himself, and he is going to provide for them what they cannot provide for themselves. Religion, that is our effort to be right with God, our effort to improve ourselves and earn his favor, religion is a default mode that we often operate out of. If you read uh, Fence Post 3, This statement will make sense, but we all are ultimately Pelagians at heart. We believe that we can improve our position. In fact, we cannot. We are ultimately, in the matters that matter most, dependent upon God's grace and upon his mercy and upon his provision. And so what we see in this passage is that God intersects. And he makes garments for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He changes their wardrobe, which is not a statement about fashion. It is a statement about their failure and a statement about his provision. And this leads to the third point that we have to understand. He does this by killing other animals and using the skins of the other animals to cover them. Now, let me just remind you, we're in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that Adam and Eve were vegetarians in the garden. God said, I give you everything that grows, for everything that's in the trees, all the fruit. That is what you're to eat. It's not until Genesis chapter 9 that God says, I give you everything to eat, including the animals. In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve are vegetarians. There has not been a death recorded yet. 
And, and what is happening here is that God is going to take an animal and in their presence to kill it. And he is going to use the skins of this animal for their provision. And what is going to happen clearly is that they are going to come to some greater awareness that sin does in fact equal death, but sometimes it's the death of a substitute. Sometimes an innocent third party is going to be pressed in to give up their life so that guilty people can go free. Don't, don't underestimate how traumatic this would have been. We, we don't have their thoughts, but you can imagine them looking on and wondering, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why are you killing these animals? You can imagine if you've, if you've been hunting, if you've, been, if you've ever field-dressed an animal, the blood goes everywhere. You can imagine what this would have been like. And, and then suddenly it's sort of cluing in for them that because of their disobedience, this is the result. And that's the fourth thing that I want you to understand. This death is not just an ordinary death. This death that leads to their covering, and I want you to hold on to that word, this death that leads to their covering is actually a sacrifice. It is, and it is a foreshadowing to all manner of deaths that are going to take place in a trail of blood that is going to lead to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the first substitutionary atoning sacrifice that we have in Scripture. Now, <clears throat> I can imagine that some of you are thinking, um, you know, uh, Mike, you have read between the lines in the past, but this seems like it is coming out of absolutely nowhere. Why in the world would you think that all of that is going on in these few words that we have here? Well, let me say this. Um, you don't get this uh, the first time you read the Bible. You don't get it the second time. You don't get it the fifth time necessarily. But eventually, as you read the Bible through, the light begins to go on. And, and these truths start to suddenly jump off the page. Please understand, this book is not a collection of random stories. This isn't Aesop's fables. This isn't a, this isn't a, a, a gathering of virtue tales that we're to read. It's, it's, it's not a suggestion of how we can be better people. This is a story. It is our story. It is the story of our rescue. And as you read it through, you begin to see the trail and you begin to see how all of these things come together. And what we have to do, as, as, as students of this book, as followers of Christ, what we need to do is we need to read the, the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, and we need to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And as we do this, it, it, the light begins to go on. And for Christians, going back into the Old Testament, reading it in light of the New Testament, it, it, it's as if there is more light suddenly that gets shined into the room. Nothing in the room has changed. It's just now you see things more clearly than you have seen them in the past. The Bible is not a collection of stories. It is a story. And most 
Christians are more familiar with the, the New Testament than they are with the Old. And so you know if you've read the New Testament through several times, or if you've been listening, you know that, that, that the high watermark of the New Testament is the, is the death of Christ. Right? That, that everything points towards Christ's death. We read through the Gospels and we have Jesus saying that, that he came, he was born to die. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A third of the Synoptic Gospels, half of the Gospel of John, all focus on the last week of Christ's life. This isn't, these aren't just biographies. They are written to point to something. And if you listen to Christ, if you listen to him say, I've come to die, I'm going to rise again from the dead, but I have come to be the sacrifice sacrifice. And then when you read through the rest of the New Testament and you hear Paul saying that, that, that I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And you read in the book of Romans and it says that without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. And you put those pieces together and then you go back into the Old Testament. Then you are looking for how the Old Testament is pointing to Christ's death. Yeah, there's more in the New Testament than Christ's death. Obviously, his resurrection, his teaching, the celebration of his deity. But those things all support the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And his son came to die in our place as the sacrifice, the innocent third party who would bear the sins of the world. That's the story. Many people read the Old Testament in completely the wrong way. They're looking for, for stories about faith and about hard work. They're looking for people that, whose lives they're going to celebrate. But, but there aren't lives in the Old Testament really to celebrate. Who are we going to celebrate? Adam? No. Abraham? Abraham demonstrates great faith. But Abraham also has a little problem with telling the truth. Right? And at one point, he says to his wife, uh, I think the king would like to sleep with you. Why don't you tell him that you're my sister, and then I will live. Because I'm not particularly interested in defending your honor. Right? I mean, that's, we're going to do a marriage seminar on Abraham and, and what a great husband he is. Is it Moses? Well, Moses is a pivotal factor, a pivotal player in the Old Testament. And there's, there's things in his life that we do want to celebrate, but he's got a temper. And it flares up and he kills a man. And his pride gets in the way and God says, I'm not going to let you go into the promised land. Is it David? David is a man after God's own heart. And he does so many things right. But he's also a guy who's, you know, he's a peeping Tom. And, he's, and then he kills the husband of the woman that he has committed adultery with. I mean, is it Solomon? I mean, Solomon is wicked smart. Solomon has a thousand wives. God says, do not multiply wives. They will lead your heart away from me. And he has all these pagan wives. No, we don't go to the Old Testament to, to celebrate great heroes, uh, the pillars. There's things that we can learn from them, but primarily when we go to the Old Testament and we read it through, a couple things begin to emerge. One of them is that God faithfully fulfills his promise that he makes in Genesis 3. He said there that he was going to send one through the seed of woman who would crush the head of evil. 
He's sending a redeemer. And we read in the Bible, it is principally the story, starting with Genesis 12. The Old Testament is the story of how God is going to to give us the Savior of the world. He goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, if you will follow me, I will give you land and descendants and I will bless the entire world through your descendants. And then we follow this, this family and we watch how in spite of their faithlessness, in spite of their hardness of heart, in spite of the many things they do wrong, that God preserves and protects them against unbelievable odds so that a virgin named Mary can give birth to the Son of God. And the other big idea that we get in the Old Testament is that there is a, there, there's all this work being done to prepare the people of God and all others to understand the person and work of Christ. What exactly he was going to do. And so what we have going through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it's from Genesis 3 all the way to the end, is this trail of blood. It is the red thread, the crimson thread. And wherever you intersect this thread, you can just follow it and the pieces begin to go together. So, for instance, we could, we could intersect this trail of blood at the Passover. God says to Moses, I want you to lead my people out of slavery. I will go with you. And so Moses finally accepts the assignment and he goes to Pharaoh. And of course, Pharaoh doesn't want to let him go. And so there's these nine plagues and it leads to the tenth plague, which is the Passover. And on the tenth plague, the angel of death is going to come. So God says to Moses, go to the people and tell them they're to take a lamb a, a, a perfect one-year-old male lamb, no blemishes, and they are to kill that lamb and to take the blood of the lamb and to paint it over the doorposts so that when the angel of death comes, he will understand that blood has already been shed for these people. Right? They're guilty, and, and sin is a capital offense. They're guilty. They deserve to die because sin is a capital offense. But an innocent third party has shed its blood so these guilty people get to live. And so we then follow this trail of blood. And we see that from the Passover, they go next to Mount Sinai, where God gives the law to his people. The Ten Commandments and, and a bunch of other things. The book of Leviticus, which is, the, which is the instructions to the priests, the Levites, on how to manage all the sacrifices. Because their job is going to be to, to be in the tabernacle or in the temple at the altar where they are receiving the sacrifices that people are going to make, millions of sacrifices that they're going to make as they bring animals in and had these animals killed and the blood poured out as an atonement for their sins. And we could follow that to the day of atonement. We could just keep following this trail. But when we do that and when we're thinking about this crimson thread, then when John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he sees Christ and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You're reading that in light of what has happened back here. Wow, these pieces begin to go together. And, and, and then we, we recognize that when Christ says that he was born to die, and, and, and that when Christ shows up knowing that he's going to be put to death and he does it at the time of the Passover, 
And when he gathers his disciples together for the Passover meal and he breaks the bread and he says, this bread is my body which is given for you. This cup is, uh, is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. You suddenly understand, wow, this has all been set up. Everything that's happening here has been set up all the way back. And when Paul is then preaching that I know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, it makes sense. That's the point. It's all about the work that Christ has done. And if we were to grab onto this crimson thread at the Passover and go backwards instead of forwards, well then we would look and say, is there anything that that predates the Passover that that would help us understand this concept of sacrifice? And then we'd think about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham being told by God to take his son Isaac, the son he loves, and to go to this mountain, which we will later realize is the same mountain where Christ is going to be crucified, he's to take his son, he's to tie him up, and he's to sacrifice him. And many people read this story and they think that this is some sort of statement about Abraham's great faith. And it seems like a bad story. Why would God have Abraham do that? Because it's not about Abraham's faith. This is a foreshadowing of a time when another father will tie up another son on an altar and have that son sacrificed. It's the same mountain where Jesus Christ is going to go to his death on the cross. And at that mountain, of course, Isaac doesn't have to be sacrificed because what, there's a substitute sacrifice. There's a ram caught in the thicket. And you, you get the idea, that the, the point that's being made here. The sin is a capital offense. That when we sin, we deserve to die, but substitutes can die in our place. And then if we were to look from there and say, well, is there anything that predates that? Well, Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. They're brothers, and Cain works the field, and Abel has flocks. And when they bring a sacrifice, Cain brings a grain sacrifice that God doesn't accept. Abel brings a, a sacrifice that includes blood, and it is accepted. And then the light goes on. And then when you back up a, a step further, and you look at Genesis 3, the passage we're in right now, and you say... Okay, well now God is killing an animal to cover Adam and Eve. Is there more here than just clothes involved? Probably. And then you think, well, God being God, he could just speak and have clothes. And if God wanted to make clothes for them out of anything, he's got, you know, cotton and wool and silk and every possible thing available to him. No, he chooses... To kill an animal, there is a sacrifice that is demonstrated. There is a foreshadowing that goes all the way back to this first passage. And then when you come to understand that the term covering, they're covered by these clothes, is the concept for atonement. It is the blood of Christ that will cover us, that will protect us. And you go, this is not coincidence. This is the story. It starts in Genesis 3 and it goes all the way to the cross of Christ. The, the logo of the church is not, is not manna, it's not a fish, 
It's not a dove for the Holy Spirit. It's not tablets for the Ten Commandments. It's the cross. Because the story is the story that God so loved the world that while we were sinners, he made a way that our penalty could be paid and justice could be preserved. And he could do this as only God could in a way that demonstrated his love and mercy and grace. That is the story of the gospel. And that is why we come to this table to remember the Lord's death until he returns. Because it is in his death that we have life. What is expected of us is not that we're going to keep the law. We can't. The way we get right with God is not by good be, being good people. We're not. We are saved in the same way everybody who has been saved has always been saved, and that is as Adam was saved by faith, by believing, by trusting in God's provision, in his promise, and now, from our vantage point, the work of Christ on the cross. And that is why we have a sacrament of the Lord's Supper in which we Remember and proclaim and celebrate the death of Christ on the cross because it is in that death that we have forgiveness. As those who are going to dis help distribute the communion elements come forward, I want to say two things by way of um, setting up this table. And then I'm going to pray. Uh, first, I want to say that the communion table is open to anyone who knows Christ as their Savior and Lord, regardless of whether or not you are a member of this particular local congregation. The only restrictions we place on this table are those we find in Scripture. This is to be uh, a meal that is participated in by those who declare that Christ is their Savior and Lord, their hope, their only hope, and who are willing to examine their lives as we enter into this time of reflection and prayer and to allow God to bring to mind sins to confess, relationships to reconcile. The second thing I want to say is, is as they distribute the elements, uh, we would like you to hold them so that we can partake together. And then thirdly, um, after I pray and while the elements are being distributed, I want to read for you out of Isaiah uh, chapter 53. This is part of the Crimson Trail. This is a passage that was written about Christ a thousand years before Christ was born. It is, it is written by the prophet Isaiah. It talks about the work of the Savior. It's part of the preparation work that was done to help people understand who they were looking for and the work that he would do. So allow the words of Isaiah that talk about the, 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 the burden, the, the pain, the penalty that Christ bore on your behalf to guide you as you prepare your heart to come to this table. Heavenly Father, we pause right now thankful for your work, your, your mercy and grace extended to us through uh, the gift of your Son. And we know that uh, you orchestrated what only you could orchestrate for us. And we praise you for that. And we praise you, Lord Christ, for your 
your death, your work, uh, your substitutionary act of atoning for our sins. And we celebrate again, we proclaim again your death on the cross as our hope. And we invite you, Spirit of God, guide, direct, bring to mind new um, ways that we can think about this and, and offer praise and thanksgiving to you for the work that has been done and, and any sin that we need to confess as we prepare to come to this table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.